We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. All right, in Acts chapter 20, there's a story of a man named Eutychus. Paul is preaching, and his preaching goes into late into the evening, into the midnight. In Eutychus, sitting at a window, he falls into a sleep. And he ends up falling down three stories and is taken up dead, the text says. And being overcome by sleep, he, he fell down, it says, from the third story. But when Paul, Paul went down, Paul bent over him, taking him by the arm, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them for a long while until daybreak and so departed. And then Paul took up the young man alive, and it says that they were not a little comforted. You're probably wondering why you said, Nehemiah, why are you starting in Acts chapter 20 and with this story? Well, there's good news and bad news this morning. Uh, The bad news is my sermon from Nehemiah is going to cover two chapters. Uh, So after leaving, you may empathize with uh, Eutychus in in a way you didn't before you came in. It's also bad news for you that if you were to fall over dead this morning, I cannot raise the dead. But it's good news this morning that none of us are sitting by a window. And you probably at least ate dinner last night, so you will be fine. And I've already talked to the children's workers back there. So Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4 is where we'll be at this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn there if you haven't already. Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4. And we're continuing our, our sermon series through the book of Nehemiah and I really am not joking. We're going to go through two chapters this morning. Now, God had chosen the people of Israel to be his special people. And though he showed grace, mercy and love to them, they they constantly rebelled against him. So he judged the people of Israel by sending them into exile for some time. But God did not abandon them. God remains faithful to his promises. And through his providential hand, the Jewish people began returning to the land. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah record this return, really regarding the preservation of God's people for the advancement of His purposes in this world. Nehemiah is the man God has burdened with a special call to lead the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now I believe the only way really to rightly understand chapters uh, 3 and 4 is to understand why this wall is so important anyway. In other words, why does it even matter? What does this have to do with us? Are we supposed to go build some sort of wall? Does this wall somehow have something to do with America? As you may often hear taught. Does this text inform us about how we should think about foreigners or foreign policy? I want to be very clear this morning. Nehemiah has... Nothing to do with America. Nothing. And it especially has nothing to do with foreign policy and Western politics at all. This, is a, this wall is about the kingdom of God. And more specifically, it's about God's faithfulness to His purposes in establishing His kingdom through His people. And this wall 
is the representation of this reality. So in chapters 3 and 4, Nehemiah's burden begins to bear fruit. He's fasted, he's prayed, he's planned in chapter 1. He's approached the king, he was commissioned by the king, he traveled to Jerusalem, he inspected the wall, and he motivated the people in chapter 2. But now the work must begin. And it's a work not simply to keep people out of Jerusalem. It's really not even a work, it's not even a a work to uh, attempt to ultimately ensure the safety of the city. It's more than that. It's about the restoration of God's covenant people so that they might be a light to the nations, as was always their call. The wall displays the fact that God intends to keep His promises with His people. He's faithful and true. Though we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And though we break covenant, He continues to uphold and keep it. So here's what I'm hoping you'll, you'll, you'll leave with today. Here's my main idea. As God's people, we labor together in the face of overwhelming opposition for the advancement of His kingdom through the triumph of His Son. As the people of God, we we labor together in the face of overwhelming opposition for the advancement of His kingdom through the triumph of His Son. Now, as you can understand this morning, I'm I'm not going to do my typical reading of the text, per se, from start to finish. But as I work through the text this morning, chapter 3, we're going to look at the advance of the kingdom. And then in chapters 4, we're going to look at the battle of the kingdom and the assurance of the kingdom. So first we begin with the advance of the kingdom here in chapter 3, verse 1. Now chapter 3 is organized geographically tracing the, the building of this wall around Jerusalem. Seven gates are mentioned here. And between each gate, people are described laboring uh, to construct this wall. And it's a, it's a dismal scene to be sure. Uh, you know, picture large piles of rubble, huge rock, and the hard of charred wooden gates everywhere. It was a, a difficult even for the most seasoned construction worker. The words labor, repair, or work echo across the pages of these two chapters for a reason. Yet the focus of this chapter is really not on the work itself. It's on the people doing the work. We find here a beautiful portrait of the people of God working for the advancement of His kingdom. And it's a portrait which instructs us this morning. Again, like I said, I'm not going to attempt to read this whole chapter. For one, it's long, but for two, you would get a lot of laughs at me trying to read all these Hebrew names. I know you want to do that, but I'm not going to do it. But all the Hebrew names stacked on top of one another is the very point. Each name, though unknown to us, represents real people who are willing to play their role in redemptive history by laboring together to rebuild this wall. We're confronted first with the diversity of the people here described as laboring in our text. Verse 1 reads, Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. From the very first verse, we find the, the leading religious figure in Jerusalem with his sleeves rolled up and a hammer in his hand building. 
From the high priest in verse 1, we see perfumers in verse 8. Rulers of districts, rulers of half districts. Members of the Levites, verse 17, merchants and goldsmiths, verse 31, and many, many others. Especially like verse 12. Look down at it. Next to him, Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler over half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Look what it says. He and his daughters. The ruler of the district is present with his young girls at work. From the high-ranking officials to everyday laborers and even children, this work required a diversity of people laboring together for this cause. Everyone has a place in the body of Christ. There is no one beyond the call of kingdom work. No matter how old you are or young you are, no matter your background or ethnicity, no matter your status or simplicity, Kingdom work requires a full expression of the diversity of the body working together. I want to say this in passing is we're going to move to talk about the unity in just a minute, which is the unity of God's people working together, which is essential for the kingdom. Unity is not uniformity. It's not. The more diversity we have in our body from our life experiences, to our culture, to our ethnicities, to our socioeconomic status, to our giftings, to our abilities, only make us stronger when these are unified and submitted to Christ. So the the beauty of their diversity here in the text is expressed through their, their unity. What a marvelous picture of the unity of God's people laboring for the kingdom. In fact, this phrase, and next to, or after him, in my English translation, shows up some 33 times in chapter 3 alone. If you were to read it out loud, it is a repetitive phrase intentionally thrown in. After him, or and next to. There may be no better picture in the Old Testament of how we are to understand ourselves as the people of God. A diverse group of people, unified, laboring together as the people of God for the advancement of God's kingdom. Listen, to be a Christian is to be a part of the people of God. Now look, we, we tend to think of ourselves primarily as individuals, independent of one another. But this comes not from the Bible, but from our culture. You see, because the earliest, from the earliest pages of the Bible, God has been working to establish His people for His glory. He's been calling a people to take part, on a, take part on a distinct identity as the people of God. This identity today is the church of Jesus Christ. We have placed faith in Christ, the one who came to fulfill all the promises Nehemiah was holding on to. Through his life, his death, his resurrection. And his spirit now lives in us and binds us together as his people from all the nations of the world. So what we see here in chapter 3 is God's hand at work advancing His kingdom through the unity of His people laboring alongside one another. We are the people of God through the work of God in Christ. We're His body united to Him and to one another for the purpose of locking arms and laboring 
the advancement of his kingdom in this world. And so I, I want to ask some questions. What do you understand your most basic identity to be? At your core, who are you? Is what I'm asking. Is your identity found in temporal things you do, your career, your marriage, your singleness, maybe even your role as a parent, as wonderful, a grandparent, as wonderful as that is? Maybe it's negative things, your, your past failings, your present struggles. Do you believe these define you? If you're a Christian this morning, I want you to understand that from the pages of Scripture, your most basic identity to be as in Christ and united to His body on this earth for His glory. You understand yourself to be part of the people of God through the work of Christ. Have you recognized this morning that you, that I, I have more in common with Christians in Bangladesh than I do with my unbelieving family members. We are the family of God, the people of God. God has made us into this. Do we understand the privilege that it is to be the people of God? And if so, we must embrace our call to labor together for the advancement of His kingdom. So here's the question. Do you see yourself as next to, alongside of, linked to, linked into gospel work with a particular group of people? Do you understand the significance of being part of something as big as the church of Jesus Christ? I think we must embrace our call to be a gospel people in this world. And I want to read again the text that I began our worship service with. Listen to the way Peter says it. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, all Old Testament language applied to followers of Christ today. Why, Peter? Why are we that? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Church, we are the, the people of God. That must, that has to inform what we give ourselves to in this life. But you know, not everyone was willing to do this work. Look down at verse 5 of chapter 3. And next to them, the Tekoa prepared, but their neighbors would not stoop to serve their Lord. Their nobles, I'm sorry. Their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. They, they didn't embrace this whole unity, this whole people of God, this whole laboring together thing. Their pride wouldn't allow it. They thought of themselves higher than they ought. They understood the, the messiness of serving alongside these people as something beyond them. They would not stoop and serve. And notice what it says. What a tragic way to be remembered in the Bible. But notice what it says. They would not stoop to serve their Lord. 
I hope none of us see ourselves as above the work of God. And that means the messiness of serving alongside other sinners like your pastor. Is your life so important that you don't have the time or the interest to stoop and serve the Lord alongside his people? Don't be a Tekoite. We must embrace our identity as the people of God and labor together to advance God's kingdom first. Second, the advance of the kingdom. Second, we see the battle of the kingdom. Now, chapter 4, we have a big contrast, right? Uh, With kingdom advance comes kingdom opposition. The the three stooges return to oppose the work of the kingdom this morning, every, every way. The enemies of God always oppose the work of God. Chapter 4 makes clear that our calling into kingdom work as a church is not just a a call to take part in some hard labor. It's a call to take part in a battle. This battle first takes the shape of taunts in verse 1. Look at it. Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yes, what they are, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Symbalad and the boys don't take kindly to this miraculous progress being made so they taunt the people as an attempt to discourage their efforts one author says Samballot belittled their qualities feeble Jews derided their ambition will they restore the wall mock their opposite will they offer sacrifices lampoon their enthusiasm will they finish it in a day undermine their confidence can they bring the stones back to life and magnify their problems those heaps of rubble burned as they are if that's not enough, his sidekick, Samballot's sidekick, chides in as well, letting them know they aren't doing a, a very good job. If a fox goes up on it, he will break it down. Before we turn to Nehemiah's response, maybe we could just ponder for a minute how you would tend to respond to that. Do you feel the need to justify yourself? Do you feel the need to put up a fight? Maybe crawl away? Nehemiah and the people respond with abiding trust and focused effort in verse 4. And that begins with prayer. Verse 4, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of these builders. Now, wow. Why does Nehemiah's so prayer so why is his prayer so harsh here? Look at what his requests are. For one, he he asked for their taunts to be turned back on them. Then he says that they would experience what we're experiencing. And then the last one, don't even forgive them, he says. Nehemiah is not responding out of his hurt feelings. Nehemiah's response is because that they are They are mocking the faithfulness of their God to His people. As He says, they have provoked you to anger in in the presence of the builders. They're mocking the living God. 
God's faithfulness to His covenant promises are at stake in their actions. But look at verse 6. What a fabulous verse. All of that. So we built the wall. Ha! And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a, a mind to work. How did they respond to these taunts? To these taunts? They, they prayed and they labored. They prayed and they labored. And then seeing that the, the first attempt of taunts didn't work, the, the three stooges ratcheted up their opposition in verses 7 and 8. When Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that, the, that's different than the Ashdodites, the Ashdodites, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Verse seven, verse 8 says they plot to wage war in order to incite confusion and division. One of the primary ploys of the enemy at rupturing kingdom work is bringing confusion and division into the body, into God's people. Maybe nothing more deadly in the body of Christ than division. As Paul says in the book of Titus chapter 3, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. The enemy can create division in a church, in a body, not long before it will fall apart. But notice the response again in verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set up a, a guard as a protection against them day and night. Again, abiding trust, deep faith. We must pray and we must stand guard against division as well. But the battle continues, right? The tots and plots are followed by discouragement and distraction in verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who hear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the walls. And our enemy said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And and that time, the Jews who lived near them, came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. This discouragement and distraction is going to come from multiple different directions. It begins from within. Look, this, this work was hard. And it was a work which I'm sure didn't seem, it seemed overwhelming. And remember, it says back in chapter 3, verse 2, these are feeble Jews. And what's behind that is these are exiles who are now trying to rebuild this massive wall with this most uncommon construction crew. I'm sure it was very discouraging to look at all the work around them and then to glance over at the perfumers trying to nail up a door. (laughs) It would have been easy to conclude, this will never get done. It's It's how Ken and the other guys feel around here with me doing work around the church. They're like, man, just go write a sermon, dude. Come on. Leave us alone. Discouragement is so deadly because it causes us to lose sight of God. That's the point of it. 
people had begin had begun to forget of the the providential and sustaining hand which was upon Nehemiah and in turn them. They began to believe they were laboring by themselves as we often do. And their enemies piled on here telling them they're coming to overtake them and kill them. And then furthermore, their own brothers living in the surrounding area began to discourage and distract the work by trying to persuade them to just give up. At the end of verse 12, they say ten times, you must return to us. They were saying, look, man, we're on your side, okay? Listen, we have your best interests in mind. This thing's a dump. Just give up. Come home, it's fine. Leave. Discouragement, distraction always stems from a fear of man over God. When people are big, God is small. And when God is small, you will begin to believe the words of man over the word of God. In his excellent book entitled, When People Are Big and God is Small. If you want to read a good book, there's one to write down. Ed Welch says this. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. We fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. These three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger, that is, more powerful and significant than God. And out of the fear that creates in us, we give other people the power and right to tell us what to feel, to think, and to do. Look, make no mistake, the Christian life is a battle. To not recognize this is to admit you are already losing ground. One of the primary ploys of the enemy is not necessarily to destroy you, but to discourage and distract you from embracing your true identity as being in Christ and part of the people of God and keeping you from engaging in His kingdom work. He doesn't want to completely destroy you all the time. He just wants to get you off the field into the stands. And this happens when we allow the lies of the world to tell us what to think, what to feel, and what to do. When people, problems, and personal issues are big, God is always small. You can say that backwards. When God is big, no matter how bad they are, people, problems, and personal issues will become smaller. To engage in the battle of the Christian life, we must keep a proper understanding of the, of the glory, of the majesty of our God which is exactly what Nehemiah does here in in these last verses. So last, I want to look at the assurance of the kingdom. This last section of Nehemiah from verses 14 to the end of the chapter is one of the most, probably one of the most familiar sections in the book. And for good reason. Let me read it to you. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 down to the end of the chapter. And I looked... And arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard it was known to us, that that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. For from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. 
And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held the weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So he labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a, a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And we find here inspiring leadership, zealous labor, a determined grit in the people to press on in the battle no matter the opposition. I, my brain goes to the scene of Braveheart before that final battle, right? It's great. They literally have a, a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. Constant guard and labor goes on day and night. A magnificent picture of the the determination and unity of the people of God laboring for His kingdom. It's a picture, I think, of what faith and action look like in the Christian life. Faith and action always go together in the Bible. Mighty works come by way of great faith. Great faith always produces mighty works. But here's the most important part I want us to see this morning. Faith in who? Faith in themselves? Faith in Nehemiah's great leadership and persuasive passion? No, faith in God. In the great and awesome God, he said in verse 14. And in the God who will fight for us. Verse 20. Nehemiah's assurance rested not in himself or the people, but in the triumph of God. The one who promised to fight for his people. The one Nehemiah knew had fought for his people in the past. The assurance of the kingdom. The assurance of the kingdom work. Rest in God and God alone. You know, because... We today as the church can say with even more confidence than Nehemiah that God will fight for us. Because we know God has fought for us in His Son. The battle Nehemiah was leading the people to so fearlessly engage in was not against these three guys. It was not against, ultimately, their military opposition. It was, as Paul says, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. It was against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That has always been the true opposition of the people of God. Satan, sin, and death is our great foe. 
He has been waging war against the kingdom of God ever since the garden. And seemingly, he's been winning. Throughout the Old Testament, up until this point, every leader, no matter how bold, how courageous, how burdened they were to live for God, they all sinned. They all fell short. They all died. I spoiled it for you last week. I'll spoil it for you again. Though the people in the book of Nehemiah will restore the wall, though they will institute worship again, and though they will make a covenant to live in faithfulness to their God by the final pages of Nehemiah, the people are back where they began. Unfaithful. Breaking the covenant. They again rebel against their God. They, like us, are unfaithful. Like us, they are sinners. Rebels to the things of God. So what we know from reading our Bible, or from reading our Bibles and honestly looking in the mirror is that the, the triumph of God's kingdom will never come by way of God's people. It can't. And it won't be found within us. If you're here this morning, you think you have the power within yourself to conquer sin and death in your heart and your life, you are mistaken. This book, especially the Old Testament, is a, a long history detailing our inability. The triumph for the kingdom of God will never come through the people of God. It must come through the Son of God. In His faithfulness, God will act again in history by sending His Son to be born to a young virgin girl in a town of Bethlehem. He would live the life Israel and we should have lived, faithfully fulfilling all the commands required of the people of God. He never sinned. He was never given over to the sway of the enemy. But then He would die a criminal's death upon the cross. But not for His sins, but for our sin. The sinless Son of God took upon our sin and judgment upon the cross. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. He paid the penalty the people of God deserved. But then He triumphed over our enemy by rising from the, from the grave and solidifying the advancement of His kingdom for His people. Amen. He fought for us. He won the victory we could not. And now through repentance and faith in Him and His triumph, we're united to Him and to one another as His people on this earth. We're called to labor together. For His kingdom. But look, we, we, we don't labor. We labor with a confident assurance. He will fight for us. Because He has fought for us and triumphed in His Son. Listen, obedience, action, labor, work, whatever you want to say, is essential to the Christian life. But not to earn anything from God. 
obedience, our labor, our work is our rightful response to all that God has done for us in Christ. In other words, we work, we labor. And we do so motivated by God's prior work in the gospel, particularly His triumph over our enemy. Listen, the resurrection of Christ assures us there is a kingdom. (laughs) And it assures us that it is not this one. (laughs) We're to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. We're to believe and embrace our identity as the people of God. And we are to lock arms and labor together. There are many, many things. And I'm hoping we can start to flesh this out through the book of Nehemiah. There are many, many things you can spend your time doing. Many, many things you can spend your money on, you can give your attention to in this world, which the Bible says will, in the end, end in vain. But there's nothing, no labor, no effort, no financial sacrifice, no early mornings, no late nights, which are in vain for the kingdom of God. Church, we we must lead. We must heed, I think. Paul's warnings. In that final concluding passage in the letter to the first Corinthians in chapter 15. It's a great passage on the resurrection. It's the most detailed, succinct, robust passage on the resurrection. But Paul says everything that he says about the resurrection. And he brings all of that to a conclusion this way. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labors are not in vain. Church, we are the the people of God. Because of the work of God. We are to labor together for His kingdom, which is a spiritual battle, but it's a battle which has been won through the triumph of Christ. So we must be steadfast. We must be immovable. We must work for the kingdom. Why? Because the tomb tomb is empty. The throne is secure. The king is seated and his kingdom is advancing. So as the the people of God, we labor in the face of overwhelming opposition for the advancement of his kingdom through the triumph of his son. Before I close in prayer, I want to maybe give us a few application hooks to hang our hat on. Maybe you're here this morning and you are trusting in your labors, your work to conquer your enemy of sin and death. And I hope you see this morning that that is a vain pursuit. And it's a vain pursuit because you can't do it. But it's a vain pursuit because God has already done what's necessary on your behalf. You must repent. You must believe. Place faith in Him. In His work upon the cross. Which conquers your victory.
Secondly, this morning, if we're believers, I two questions. What are we laboring for? And who are we laboring with? What are we laboring for? Who are you doing that with? We're the people of God. And we're called to labor for the kingdom of God. That is our privilege. That is our call as the body of Christ. So our prayer today should be help us, Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we we do come to the end of your instruction this morning from chapters 3 and 4. This morning, Lord, I, I pray that through the middle of my feeble attempts, uh, for everyone in the room, you would help them hear beyond the, the words of a man to hear the voice of God. Lord, thank you that we are the people of God that you've called us, that there's a privileged position for us. Lord, and it comes about not through our labors, not through our efforts, but by your finished work through your Son. Lord, I pray that anyone in this room who does not know you, anyone in this room who this morning is resting or trying to labor to earn their place in the kingdom, Lord, they would see the, they would hear the call this morning that God has, will fight for you because he has fought for you in Christ. And that we would, anyone who doesn't know you this morning would embrace that victory this morning in Christ to us repentance, admitting who you're not, and faith in Christ, confessing who he is. Lord, for us as a body, I pray you would motivate us, encourage us, yes, to labor, but to labor with one another for the advancement of your kingdom in this world. Lord, remind us again the joy, the privilege that it is to be the people of God. Remind us again the joy that it is to have our identity secured in you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Use it for the sake of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.